0: Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Russ. I cover the UK and Europe for Samsung Next. Over the next several months, we'll be sharing interviews recorded at this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin, where some of today's leading minds in technology gathered in early July. Each week, we'll highlight the human stories behind tomorrow's most groundbreaking innovations. In this episode, you'll hear from Chris Messina, the inventor of the hashtag, Chris speaks to Johnny Tiernan of Lola Magazine about a decade living on the edge of social technology, designing products and experiences for Google and Uber, and giving away many of his creations.
1: Let's start with like telling us a bit about your story, how you got to where you are today, and what is it that you do? Well,
2: I mean, I guess I got to where I am sort of um, in a somewhat haphazard way. Um, I studied design in school you know, always loved, uh, both technology, um, and art and, um, design was the thing that kind of brought those things together and ended up going out to Silicon Valley in 2004 and quickly got involved in the open source movement. And, um, kind of, I think the, the, the trend for me throughout my entire life has been trying to figure out how to make social technologies that more and more people can use without having to go to a central authority or get permission from somebody else. And, as a result, ended up getting involved in the early kind of open web community, and that led me to produce this idea, like for the hashtag, back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then since then, I've worked at a couple of big uh, tech companies like Google and Uber, mostly on um, platform strategy. Also, had my own conversational AI startup, and I've just kind of been all over the place.
1: Cool. And uh, with having an open source background, how would you rate the current open source community and the current wave of, uh, I suppose, technological monopolization? We could say.
2: Well, you know, open source is an interesting, um, I would say, strategy for achieving a certain set of outcomes, mm-hmm. um, where you make something that is expensive for someone else cheap for yourself, perhaps, or for your community. And by that, I mean, in the beginning, you know, Netscape sought to kind of, you know, make the web a more open place for more people to play and, and build software, whereas Microsoft wanted to own it and keep it proprietary and charge people sort of a license for their software. Um, and so open source did a couple things, one, it allowed for individuals to contribute code to essentially projects to advance them in their own interests, but then also to organize large groups of people to address software problems faster and in, in the open. So they would ultimately be probably less buggy. And so rather than waiting for a vendor like Microsoft to solve the problems, you could solve them yourself and then contribute them, and then everyone would benefit from them. So where we are today, there's a lot of open source. And in, in a lot of ways, since 2004, I would say open source is no longer sort of a pejorative or Seen as being like a negative aspect of software, but something that is is part of the the collaborative ethos of a lot of you know backend software platforms and technologies. And I'm seeing a lot more, I think, collaboration and open sourcey behaviors kind of in the AI machine learning space, where people are publishing papers, they're sharing their research, and essentially they're kind of showing their work. So I would say it's in that way al- alive and well. But running performance scalable distributed systems is actually quite difficult. So even though an individual could like set up their own website on their own web host, the number of things that you need to do to participate now, I think is much greater than it was before and it's more complex. So it's taken on a a different role basically.
1: Yeah, it's changing a lot over the years. Was there a personal turning point in your past that kickstarted what you do today? Is there a pivotal moment?
2: You know, I think, so I I grew up in New England, um, in New Hampshire, which is a pretty small state. I think I kind of grew up with like a chip on my shoulder a little bit. The turning point really was um, when I was kicked out of high school for building a Gay Street Alliance website. I, at that point, you know, was running my high school's website. I'd built like all the club websites and I was just excited to like get people online and hopefully to address what I saw as all these communication issues between parents and students and teachers and faculty and administration I was really hoping that the web would be this great publishing platform to bring everyone together. It just so happened that there were some ideas that I guess the world, or at least my high school, weren't wasn't quite ready for. Um, and so when I got kicked out, um, I realized that this social technology, this this platform of the web, was going to be incredibly powerful and incredibly important. And fortunately, um, the ACLU and GLAD and some other organizations sued the school district to allow this gay straight alliance to exist. And then I was like reinstated in school, so I was able to graduate. I think in that moment, you know, I realized, like, one, I had a lot of, I suppose, privilege to be able to work on these things and, you know, still, like, graduate, whereas a lot of my friends, for whom I was building, like, the Gay Street Alliance website, you know, didn't have those same, that same access and the same privilege, and so I needed to work to find ways of distributing and disseminating more of that to more people through the web and through web technologies.
1: It sounds like that's an ethos that you've carried forward from that moment. Yeah. I
2: mean, even, you know, like, cause when I went to Google in 2010, I was really reluctant to do so. I'd always been very independent. I'd always kind of worked for myself. I'd always advocated for an open web or for open source for giving access to more technologies, to more people, because I knew that I was able to do what I was able to do based on similar people doing similar things. And I really wanted to kind of like pay that forward and, You know, it's not that like when I went to Google, like I lost that ethos, but, you know, obviously you're working for a paycheck and you have to think about the context that you're in. They're giving you money so that you'll do the thing for them, not just for whatever it is that you think is the most valuable thing. And yeah, I think that that drove me um, and a lot of things that I've done like since then.
1: And were there any moments when you wanted to throw the towel in? And if so, how did you coax yourself around to continue on?
2: It's less about throwing in the towel and more like, I think I suffer both from... Like imposter syndrome, as well as um, just like a sense of of unworthiness, more than anything. I know, like when I left Google, I was really lost. I didn't know what I was working on anymore. I had gone to Google because I was really concerned about the threat that Facebook posed to the internet. I knew that if you had to go through Facebook to sign up to get an account, and that Facebook would represent you and your identity on the internet. And you would sign into every website and every app using your Facebook account that would greatly reduce competition over time. And the way in which you express yourself would only be through means that Facebook allowed. And I knew that the web was more of an open ecosystem that was generative, that allowed people to express themselves in whatever way that they wanted to. And it seemed that Google's future was more wrapped up in the success of the web than uh, anybody else's. And so I went there with the thought that Google could maybe take on and then create more competition for Facebook. But Google kind of screwed it up with Google+. And so after I left, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Like, you know, Facebook won. Like, Facebook won the battle. They bought Instagram. Like, they have WhatsApp. They have all of those different things that I was worried about being consolidated. Well, I think I went through a period of just introspection and reflecting on, like, what I was doing with myself. And um, came out the other end, I think, a lot more resilient and a lot stronger and centered in myself.
1: And is there a time when you wish you had thrown in the tile? Hmm. If so, what did you learn from that experience?
2: Hmm. I think it's always a difficult thing to figure out how far or how long do you push an idea uphill before you realize like, it's just not going to happen. Like there's sort of a point at which you're like, I think this is a good idea and I think it should happen, but it's just not going to happen. You know, I co-founded a, a, a conversational AI company, you know, was working on that for about a year. There was like a falling out between me and my co-founders. And I just like, I want to keep going. I want to keep pushing it. Like I was sort of like, you know, willing to shoulder it. I was like willing to be there for a long time, but I started to realize that the conflict and the tension was going to prevent us from actually being able to like push forward when the headwinds really came at us. And at that point, um, I kind of realized that the best thing for me to do, the healthiest thing for me to do was actually to step away from this thing, which I'd really, I think wanted to invest myself in. I felt very connected to, and I did. And you know, now it's been a little over a year and, um, and I feel a lot better about having, you know, come to that conclusion.
1: Hmm. Do you think maybe you came age is something that helped you come to that conclusion a bit quicker? Maybe if you were younger, you'd have stuck Yeah, maybe. It. I yeah. mean, like, I
2: see young people who, like, build things and then, like, they don't actually push them to a level of quality or execution where you actually know if the thing you're building could actually be good. And I think that's the other thing that I always struggle with. It's, like, if I have an idea in my mind and I really want people to understand it, I feel like I need to execute it with a level of fidelity so that they understand what it is I'm trying to do. And sometimes you build these smaller, you know, incremental, almost like toys – to see if people will like it but you're like, but that's not really what I'm trying to, to do. I'm like, yes, I could build it. And that was simple, but it's not enough. I don't know if like, if I were younger, if I would have made a better decision or not, I mean, maybe I would have been deterred much sooner and been like, I'm not going to push through. Actually, you're probably right. I mean, cause, cause I am such a stubborn person. I think I've gotten maybe more moderate over time Or I'm just like looking at this, like the big picture and I'm like, given all the things that I could put my energy into, like aligning with like where the universe is opening a course for me is going to be much better for me and everyone around me than if I really push really hard on this just because I think, you know, cause I'm obstinate, you know, and if you tell me no I really want to prove you wrong. Yeah. Right.
1: That ties in really well with the next question, which is, has your personal life suffered or benefited from the path that you've taken? <laughs>
2: um, you know, it took me three times, but I've realized that I should not go into business with my romantic partners. Um, <laughs> so I would say that there were some great benefits. For example, I worked um, with my ex-wife at Google and our vacations aligned, you know, so we could like, you know, go for like three weeks and travel and it was great. But in other cases, you know, you end up, overlapping so much and almost becoming codependent that you no longer sort of lose that otherness about your partner and that mystery and that intrigue. I think I've realized that it's really important to preserve those things. And that even though you might want to spend all your waking time together with that other person, it's ultimately not good for the relationship or for either of you. Yeah. There's been some suffering along the way
1: (laughs) and some learnings (laughs) (laughs) and some learnings. Yes. And did you ever falter in your mission to achieve your vision?
2: For sure. In different ways too. Even the first time, like when I went into Twitter's headquarters with like the idea for the hashtag mm-hmm. um, and they rejected it and they said it wasn't going to work. <laughs> like I was like, oh, well, I don't know anything. So I suppose I should just, you know, walk away with my head down kind of thing. But then like the next day I was like, whatever, like I have friends that, you know, think this is OK. And I think this is still a good idea. And for some reason, I feel this is like really important. I mean, there's been moments. I mean, the self-doubt is huge. It's not just like I feel like my own inner critic is like 10 times stronger than my external critics. And so that's probably the thing that's held me back the most and learning to sort of like love that part of me that like wants to do really well, but is also sometimes just like shouting me down and is not useful, um, has been a big part of reparenting myself and getting to myself to a place where, um, I can appreciate how much this person wants to succeed, but also you've got to make room for just trying things and failing and being willing to live with those things and realizing that that's actually the process of learning.
1: You must've felt a real sense of indication uh, with the success of the hashtag mm. in, in the light of that rejection. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, so there's been a few things in my life where I was like quite certain that these things were going to work, you know, if all the stars kind of aligned, you know, the hashtag is one of those things that I needed to take credit for at a moment because Twitter wanted to prevent everyone else from using it. Mm. And so up until that point in 2009, before Twitter's IPO, I really wanted to be anonymous. And I just, I didn't want to actually take ownership of the hashtag or be connected to it. Um, cause that wasn't the point. The point was it was that it was a behavior that I wanted to have out on the web and that anybody could use. And it didn't matter that I was connected to it. But once Twitter was like, Oh, it's our thing. It's our idea. And we're going to prevent, you know, Facebook and Instagram from using it. I was like, No, you're not. Like you guys said it was a bad idea. So <laughs> in that moment, I had to step up and into like that ownership role, but. Otherwise, I sort of like, you know, knew that it was going to be a thing. And in a similar way, like when we started the coworking working um, movement in 2006, I was very clear with my friend, Brad Newberg, who kind of, you know, coined the term that we were going to take this idea and like build a big community around it. That also has sort of turned into like this amazing thing. And so sometimes I have a sense of human behavior and desires and I synthesize a lot of things together to be like, I think this is like how this is going to work out. And there's been a few times where I've been right. And that's just like, it is very gratifying it's not like specifically about me. It's just like my timing has been pretty good.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of feel like there's a parallel between this desire for the hashtag to be a public property, mm. so to speak, and not be privately owned. Mm-hmm. And also your, your roots in the open source movement. It's all, well. it's all
2: connected. Yeah. It's all part of it. The, like these are different tactics for achieving the same thing. So like, because my definition of success has been different and adjacent from most Silicon Valley success, I never went to Silicon Valley to get rich. Like I went to Silicon Valley because one, I think I wanted to find a place to to fit in. And I also wanted to contribute to culture. I wanted to give other people the same chance that I had to express myself through social technology to other people. And that meant making that technology more available, more ubiquitous, easier to use. And so those are the things that were driving me, which then meant that other people that were trying to do things that were based on profit or money, you know, would not succeed as as well or as easily because they needed to find ways of holding their ideas or constraining them. And that was never like necessary for me.
1: So what's your advice for other entrepreneurs to turn their vision into reality?
2: It is important to, I think, be humble. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I still feel like I don't know anything. And I also feel like one of my other superpowers is is just to be curious. And so I have a great deal of curiosity about people and about their experience. And I kind of want to know like (laughs) what their life is like and how social technology does or doesn't work for them. And it's trained me, I think, to just really like listen because I care. So when you're building something or you're wanting to solve problems, on the one hand, it's useful to like know and understand your own pain and why you're trying to address those things. But if you really want to get something to succeed and be used by a lot of people, you really have to understand the way in which other people are going to internalize your ideas, make them their own, and then tell other people about them. And that requires you to really, you know, one, listen and then to reduce the complexity of things.
1: Can you name a mistake that you made earlier in your career that you could advise other entrepreneurs to avoid?
2: I think this is a real tough one given like the, strength of my inner critic, but it really is to, to learn, to listen to yourself um, and have faith in yourself. I know I really struggled with that. And I think there's a difference between having faith in yourself and being arrogant. As long as like you sort of like believe that you have the best intentions in mind, you know, and are willing to take feedback, then I think, you know, I could have probably avoided a bunch of stuff before where I doubted myself and stopped pursuing ideas you know, or let things go or let other people det- determine or define success for me um, in moments where I was like feeling particularly bad about myself.
1: If you return to TOA in 10 years' time, what topics do you hope the conference will be focusing on? What problems do you hope we will have solved by then?
2: <laughs> well, so I went to this dinner last night. There's this environmental activist named Louisa who was there and she, um, I guess organizes Fridays for future Mm -hmm. hashtag Friday for future. If in 10 years, I know 10 years is very aggressive, but I think we kind of need to be operating on that level. Um, we've come to a place where we're sort of getting to a place of a zero carbon economy, for example, which again, Mm -hmm. seems like a pipe dream. Then the things that we're probably going to be talking about is like how we've adapted and adjusted and what it is that we're doing with ourselves to entertain ourselves and keep ourselves like, maybe learning more sort of introspectively um, about ourselves and each other and about what our needs are like in that new environment. How are we continuing to like adjust ourselves to like living in that context and doing so in a social way? And in 10 years time, I don't know how many more billion people are going to be on the planet, but clearly it's going to be much denser. And so we are going to need to learn a bunch of new social skills. So right now I would say in this year and last year, the idea of empathy is something that's trending. But there's going to be deeper and deeper and more complex expressions of that core idea that are going to need to be, I think, discussed and talked about. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm imagining is like the human experience is going to be about in 10 years. And so that's what we're going to be talking about.
1: Yeah. And if you could eliminate one buzzword out of your industry, what would it be?
2: (laughs) Probably privacy. Mm -hmm. And I say that not because I don't think privacy is important, but I think it obscures what people really need and what they want. It's sort of one of those words that's like a catch-all and yet it means nothing or it's very subjective and it means something very precise, but it's not shared. And so the more that we can like stop using words that obscure the meaning of the conversation um, and get to something clear. I think the better off we'll be. And especially in a moment where we're talking about regulating social media companies, your privacy that you want to preserve may prevent you from getting access to the information that you actually seek from someone else. And so you really have to think about that from a two way exchange and what that means. And so I really wish that that conversation would, go deeper and become more interesting and more useful. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And one last thing I would like to know is, do you have any links with the time well spent movement or the center for humane technology?
2: Yeah. So, um, Tristan Harris, uh, is a friend of mine. We Mm -hmm. worked together at Google. He showed me his, his deck before he actually presented it at Google. You know, my challenge to him at the time really was to make his work tactical and I guess like useful. It was very high level. It was very philosophical. It was easy to say, yes, I agree with you, but harder to say, well, what do you want us to do about mm-hmm. it? The fundamental challenge I think that Tristan and others have, um, including myself to deal with in this moment is about the economic motivations that, you know, essentially the public market is driving the way in which products, social technology in particular is being built to use attention as an extractive asset you know, ultimately using our technology against us because of the money that's being made from it. And so if we can change the incentives, then ultimately we could build more humane software, but unless we we do, or unless we have a whole different generation that grows up with a different idea about what, you know, uh, commerce and, um, you know, capitalism looks like, we're going to be stuck with the same stuff for a while. Mm Do You have a quick question. Uh, what's your expectations of the future of social media? And do you think that, such inventions like uh, the hashtag will be appearing also in the near future, like will be uh, evolving the social media in the world? You know, kind of like the thing that I've been focusing on in the last year or so is looking at the ways in which social media has been negatively used and then seeing the ways in which we're trying to solve the problem with technology, like pure digital technology. Um, We're trying to manipulate people into going into either private groups or private channels because Facebook doesn't want to be in the business of like censoring content because that would ruin their business. So it seems to me, That the thing that needs to improve over the next while is the, is the people using social media themselves. Like, and so I've started to really remove this notion that we are separate from our technology. We are actually extending ourselves by our technology. The fact that I wear a watch and know the time, like I don't think about it as like a separate thing. I just like look at my wrist and like I know the time. So we are becoming our phones and our phones are becoming us. This is a little bit adjacent, but like, to answer your question, like, there's always going to be a need for people to find each other, to meet, to use, you know, flags and signals to reach each other. The hashtag is one of those. And so I imagine that there's going to be different versions of those in different types of social media, which has levels of uh, richness. So for example, in visual media, you might have um, stickers or gifs, and those are a way of like finding other people or communicating. In 3D space, you'll have a different set of you know, signs and forms. I think it's going to be really interesting for people to be able to create synthetic versions of, the, of themselves that are not necessarily true to who they are in the meat space world and are different. And then other contexts where you do want to present yourself as really who you are. So I see those things kind of, I guess, being where things are going to evolve with greater or less degree of fidelity and different contexts. I was just wondering, it, it popped in my head, those alternate versions and dark mirror of social networks. And I've I think I've heard and read that in China, a certain version of that is actually happening. Are you aware of any efforts being made in this direction in Europe and the United States, which pretty much lead the social networks here? Uh, or is this even a topic? Are people mindful in these large organizations that we we got to be careful to not stray down that path? Or you may become more connected than you wish and you may, may be forced to abide, uh, abide by those rules of the social networks? Yeah, I mean, I think that those things are definitely happening. I mean, you know, one of the other buzzwords, of course, is like blockchain. And there's a desire to sort of put everything into some digital form. And that change is going to have a great deal of consequences, because we don't know how governance actually works in that world. We also don't know what happens when you introduce these types of technologies to a broad um, human population that is uninitiated in how these things work. So as of 2019, 50% of the global population is connected to the internet. But over the next 10 years, the next 50% will be connected. That next 50% is not digitally literate and so they're going to experience and come into a digital media world that um is going to seem on the one hand very magical but on the other hand can be very draconian based on those types of controls it's unclear to me you know what happens to them as they start to adapt these technologies to themselves and they use them as though they're just like normal. The funny thing is, is that the developed world may end up you know, being leapfrogged in a way because people will be able to adopt those technologies in a very native way, in a very new way, because they don't have the legacy that we do. So for example, to me, voice computing is very powerful, but it's less powerful in the developing world because we grew up with Google and we know how to like type very fast. But if you never learned how to type or you don't know how to like read, for example, but you can speak, you can use voice computers. And so if voice computing is more natural to you, what are the behaviors that you'll engage in on a more regular basis that we don't even understand yet? So they may be the ones that actually drive the future of like AI and conversational agents, because we are so immersed in a world that allows us to type and text so naturally. Um, and so I think that's super interesting to think about where that goes. For example, I was thinking, so we automatically see, we have eyelids. Eyelids are like shades that prevent us from seeing, but your voice is something you have to generate. And if, for example, there were a law that forbid you from being able to speak because of the power that you would have in a digital context, what would that mean? What would that mean if you were literally gagged or muted? And so you couldn't operate like a search engine, like, which is a voice controlled system. All of a sudden, free speech takes on a very different import in a world where literally we're talking about like voice and speech in that sense. So I don't know where it goes. I mean, obviously, there's Black Mirror, which, you know, demonstrates a set of ideas. Hopefully, um, again, if we were doing a better job building better humans to build these things, I know it sounds very naive, um, we may we may end up in a better, you know, more resilient space.
1: I'm just wondering if you think we're, with, in respect of social media, we're heading in the right direction and things are getting better. And if there's a, you know, if there's a chance to kind of like quell this attention-grabbing economy. Would it be possible, for example, to have an open source, non-profit driven social media that would emerge to compete with existing ones?
2: I don't know that that's like the relevant layer to solve the problem. I really think it's about um, human norms and expectations. And we've lived through the fastest change in media, I think, in all of human history. And so there's a generation that either needs to become very plastic in the way that they see and relate and understand that they have responsibility for how they amplify their voices through social media and social technology, because individual humans have never had that power before the Gutenberg press and things like that were, you know, mostly reserved for like the churches and for a small number of very powerful people. Now we've democratized those powers, but it's very unusual and very strange. And suddenly like we love this power and we can make people feel horrible. Right. And that's a superpower that we didn't have before. And suddenly you have to realize with great power comes responsibility as, as Spider-Man has taught us. Um, And yet people haven't for some reason gotten that message um, because they're not seeing The consequence of their actions on someone else. They're saying negative things in a digital space and it feels good in the moment because of all of our mammalian programming, but we have to unlearn some of those things. So I think the deeper issue really is, and perhaps I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic that a generation grows up seeing that like a young generation, they see how horrible we treat each other. And they're like, I don't want to do that to people. And so maybe they will start to train us to behave differently. Um, and that'll be the way in which we sort of address these issues. But I don't think it's about open source or even necessarily like the economic model. I think it's about people realizing the power that they have and taking responsibility for them.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's a nonprofit service. It's still going to expose the worst aspects of humanity yeah. that we need to confront and change. <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean, there's been so many efforts that have tried it. And I just think that it's not in the technology. It's in the people.
1: Okay.
0: Thanks for listening to What's Next. We're currently releasing a new episode every week from this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next or send us an email podcast at SamsungNext.com. Cheers.